Welcome to Feminist Buzzkills, the show that won't spend $14 billion on a foot washing commercial. You're welcome. I'm Moji Alore-L, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alyssa Alduki. Hey, Moji. Hey. I'm so excited to be here with you today. We are going to talk to Diana Green Foster, MacArthur genius and author of The Turnaway Study, the seminal study that asked the question, what happens to folks when they don't get the abortion access they need? Hmm. Plus, Michigan undoes a slew of terrible old abortion laws while South Carolina dreams up excitingly improbable ones. And we get mad that Texas doesn't care if you assault your pregnant wife. Oh, Texas, that sounds awful. Oh, what's that I hear? It's time for Johnson Watch. Yes. Ta-da. Johnson Watch. So Speaker of the House Mike Johnson continues to do his best to be the worst. Last week, he showed up at the National Gathering for Prayer and Repentance, which is the far right alternative to the relatively benign National Prayer Breakfast that you've probably heard of. Proving that like fake clinics, extremists like to name bigoted things with the maximum chance of confusion with something not extreme. So the National Gathering for Prayer and Repentance was co-founded by the Family Research Council. A hate group, of course. Uh, Yeah. They like to name themselves things that sound innocuous, as you said. mm -hmm. And they stood firm against LGBTQIA rights, big abortion, and clean air. (laughs) Controversial. (laughs) The who's who of faith leaders you don't know prayed to tie the hand of Satan, prayed for Jesus's return, and planned for one nation under their very narrow concept of God. Mr. Second in line to the presidency, Johnson, was there politely co-signing stuff like this insane quotation, Ishtar, the ancient Mesopotamian fertility goddess, and other ancient deities returned to Earth because the 1969 Stonewall riots opened a portal to another realm. A portal? A portal. Like, is this a threat of a good time? That sounds great. It sounds like really bad sci-fi. <laughs> it does. You know, if he was any less square, and I mean, Johnson, I just wonder what he'd been smoking to say like, oh, I can stand next to this crazy. But I know it's likely the sweet, sweet high of patriarchal domination. And I just want to remind everyone that elections matter because he wasn't the only member of our congressional body there. At least 16 other elected officials were in attendance. And these are the people that make our laws, confirm our judges, and make deals with our president. And they believe we have literal demons in this country. That's so crazy because I believe that they are the literal demons in this country. I do as well. So there's that. (laughs) So what else is going on, Dukes? No one asked you. The doc about Abortion Access Front is out and doing festivals all over the country. And Liz has been out there promoting the documentary. She just got done in San Francisco, and she's here to tell us all about what happened. Welcome, Liz. Liz. Hi, y'all. You're doing such a great job. The pod is amazing. I could not. It's like so great. It's, It's pretty cool. So like, who knew? that this documentary about abortion was going to be really hitting home. You know, it it premiered in New York in November and then it started this festival circuit. And so it, it was just, we were just in San Francisco and we're going to be, by the way, in like, I can't say the cities, but so far 12 festivals oh my goodness. on the showing. So it was packed and it was at 6.15 on a Friday. So you're like, who's going to come? And People came and they really resonated with the doc in the sense of like seeing themselves in the work. You know, there's so many cool Mm. documentaries 
about obstacles to abortion or abortion provision as plan C and then following patients. But this one is really just shows our work and what we do and lets people see we have created space and opportunity for anybody watching this film who's like, I want to get involved to be able to get involved and do their part with the capacity they have. And people really resonated with that. And I think what was the coolest part was in the documentary, we really highlight how abortion access front, how part of our work is confronting anti-abortion extremists and also like capturing them on video and doing a bunch of research and collecting data on them. And one of the most severe people in the film who has been outside of clinics harassing and terrorizing patients around the country to be able to tell the audience that because of us gathering data and footage of him doing that, that he was just convicted on federal charges for doing it. And the yeah, audience yeah. was really like they they leapt to their feet with joy. And so it's really nice to have an epilogue after the film to let people know good things are happening. What's the most exciting thing that like happened at the screening in San Francisco, though? Like, tell us about you're just out there. You know, I think what was really cool was that Nancy Skinner, who is a Democratic rep who represents Berkeley and who is the person who has been introducing all the bills expanding access to care in California, came to the screening and stood up and said, this is an organization that is doing the work so profoundly and that inspires us and our work every day. And so that felt like really cool oh, yeah. that what we're doing was yeah. hitting the ears, a person in a state where, and I, you know, and we talk about this on the podcast so much in, in our work at abortion access front in is complacency in states who think that, and I'm air quoting everywhere who think they're safe. Right. Mm -hmm. is something that we cannot have because there's, as we as we look to the future, as the Supreme Court is going to be ruling on the uh, access of mifepristone, that could affect every state. You know, that could immediately put a ban on medication abortion to seven weeks in New York and California. And so to have our work inspire the politicians in those safe states, codify and solidify and try to keep and protect access any way they can is pretty cool. That's great. It's such a great opportunity to like do the showing and not telling about yes. what Abortion <laughs> Access Front does. And especially like this has been filmed for seven years. Like you're finally now getting to not only watch it, but then watch other people watch it. <laughs> yeah, and it's weird. Me? Also just watching my wild uh, hair hair color transitions. <laughs> also, there's a series of dogs that have no, no longer are with us anymore. You know, it's kind of like there's a lot of stuff in that. But also it's just a reaffirmation of when we started the work, you know, nearly 10 years ago, the work started. And then they started filming this documentary, as you said, seven years ago. The foundational mission has not changed. We mm. saw this need and the way that we're filling it has has morphed and changed through pandemic, through, you know, different legislation of where you need to pivot. And I feel really glad that that foundation of what we're doing and how we're doing it in a really intersectional way and centering the people who are harmed by this the most is pretty cool. It makes you proud of the people who, because as anything, you know, I had a kernel of an idea and then I roped in really talented people to help execute it and do it. And so I always say, I'm really thankful for my instincts at bringing amazing people together 
who actually are doing the work in a profound way. I have wacky ideas and and my team has brilliant ideas and together it's a big together we do this thing to make the world a better place and that is really fun to see on screen. So I know we can't talk about all of the upcoming screenings but which ones can you talk about? Um, oh, just so we can let our you. audience know before yes. we let you go. That's a good thing. So on February 24th we are going to be in Washington, D.C. at the Washington, D.C. Film Festival. And I will be speaking after the film with the filmmaker Ruth Lightman and Renee Bracey Sherman. And I, you know, who we just, just featured their mini pod with yes. her. <laughs> we love them. That one I can speak of. And I think that the other ones haven't quite announced yet. And so, but they're all coming up and some of them are cool and big and some of them are small and cool. But as we, as we get to announce, we will do that. But like, just know that more than likely, we will be coming to your town. Look, I can say that with, with that authority. And so we can't wait to tell you uh, when that is. But a, a whole slew of announcements are going to be coming very quickly. So pay attention to this pod and all of our Abortion Access Front socials will be shelling you with when the screenings are. Well, thank you so much, Liz. Have fun. Oh my God. You guys have fun. Carry on. You're doing great We're gonna work. We're going to have so much fun. And, um, hold it down. Have fun. I'm also uh, going to be heading on vacation. So it's going to be the Moji Dukes train for yes, the next couple will. of weeks. Choo, and choo. I am super psyched about that because I am piecing out to Mexico and I am not talking to either of you bitches. So just know that. <laughs> I love you. I ain't talking to you. Bring us Bye, Liz. Bye, Liz. Bye. Well, we better get on with it. Duke, since you're co-hosting, let's do the news dump together. Well, I hope you've got your squatty potty because I want this one to be real easy. A new study has been released that since the Dobbs decision, fake clinics have received, wait for it, 1.4 billion with a b dollars in funding and 344 million of that came from you the american taxpayers that amount of money is basically the same amount that taylor swift made from the entire era's tour but she didn't earn it by bilking taxpayers and slut shaming her fans so here's an idea maybe this billion dollar anti-abortion juggernaut should be the one getting all the shame ridicule and scorn instead of tay tay Oh, fuck yeah. And over in Kansas, politicians are going the extra misogyny mile with a proposed bill that would redefine fetuses as Kansas children and allow pregnant people to claim child support for them. No word as to whether the Kansas Senate will also reclassify women as fetal storage units or penile parking garages. Ooh, and lastly, almost hell, West Virginia. Sing it, sister. Thank you. The West Virginia Senate just passed a bill that would require doctors to inform patients seeking life-saving abortion care about a ghoulish anti-abortion stunt called perinatal hospice services, a.k.a. forcing them to counsel patients on carrying non-viable fetuses to term. The so, fuck? The fuck is exactly the reaction that everybody should be having. So basically what they're saying, like, imagine your dentist saying, yeah, that tooth is rotten to the root, but instead of extracting it, we recommend periodontal hospice and we're just going to keep it in your mouth until it dies on its own. Oh, that is so gross. So what we're saying is dead fetal storage units is the quantum leap West Virginia is ready to take, huh? Sure sounds like it. Those are this week's headlines, proving yet again that the anti-abortion imagination is patriarchy's playground. Woo! Ghoulish. Those were the quick hits. But let's get to the stories we really want to sink our teeth into. Start us off with some good news, Dukes. 
Sure thing. Last year, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed 321 public acts, and more than 140 of those went into effect this past Tuesday, including some truly righteous and much-needed ditching of BS abortion restrictions. Dope. Dope. We love to see it. The first one your girl Gretch signed was a law lifting the ban on dilation and extraction abortion procedures. The medical term for what the anti-abortion assholes call partial birth abortion. Do not fall for that. It's not a medical term. It's not a thing. Also, dilation and extraction, which you might hear as DNE or DNC for dilation and curatage, is very common and vital to miscarriage management. So this is a huge win for people who do not want to die from their pregnancy outcomes. Oh, I love doing things to help people who don't want to die from their pregnancy outcomes. She also, because she's fresh, she also got rid of the special rider people had to get that was charmingly dubbed rape insurance. And this, this was a special gift that the Right to Life organization cooked up for Michiganders about 10 years ago. Mm. And Governor Whitmer was a party leader in the legislature when it passed. And she spoke about it passionately at the time. Because let's be honest, paying extra just in case you're raped is a devious kind of cruelty that we're thankful is gone. Oh my God. Yeah. Thank God. Speaking of shit that really should have gone out the window a long time ago, the third act was repealing a 1931 law that would have criminalized doctors and nurses who prescribed abortion medication to patients. Now, medication abortion, you've heard to say a hundred times, is the most commonly used form of abortion and counts for over half of abortions in this country. And for context, this law is older than the ballpoint pen. The one that Gretchen used to move this law off the books? That's right. (laughs) To see it. I think this was a leftover of the 1931 law. Public universities weren't sure if they could talk about abortion with pregnant students after the Dobbs decision. And she just made sure it was clear that, yes, they can talk about abortion with pregnant students. It's amazing how sensible these things sound. (laughs) (laughs) It is. They just sound like reasonable things that a reasonably running state should reasonably allow for their reasonable citizens. And she was like, let's do that. Great. Thank you, Gretchen. (laughs) Moji, why don't you take us into our next story? This story is... It's a little chunky, but we're going to do it. So a Texas lawyer was only sentenced to six months in jail after he was caught slipping abortion pills into his pregnant wife's drinks seven times. Seven times? Seven times. Different times. Seven independent times. Now, giving people drugs they don't know about or want to have is assault. So why was he given such a lenient sentence? I mean- there were, it wasn't like there was lack of evidence, right? The wife had saved the contents of six of the beverages he served her, uh, which had traces of misoprostol in it. There was video footage in the house of him adding something to a beverage he served her. And she found the wrappers of the drugs in the garbage he had taken out and gave all this to police. So they were separated. And he said that he did this because he didn't want to seem like a jerk, I guess, for separating from a pregnant woman. But drugging her makes him not a jerk. I don't know. I don't know. Unless it make it make sense. Sorry, I can't make it make sense. And this sentencing is so wild to me because when you put it in context with other people who've taken medication abortion in Texas. So, for example, when a woman was suspected of self-managing her abortion with pills in 2022 before the Dobbs decision, when there was a federal right to abortion, Texas prosecutors charged her with murder and she spent days in jail until national outcry made them drop the charges. 
Also, let's not forget when Kate Cox needed an abortion in December to preserve her life and fertility, the Texas attorney general threatened doctors who might do the procedure with a $100,000 fine or 99 years in prison. It's almost like the fight is against people deciding what they want to do with their body, but no one cares if someone else gets in in there and just all up in the Kool-Aid. I, when researching for this, was reminded of the story of Harold Thompson, and this is a man who murdered his girlfriend after she traveled from Texas to Colorado for an abortion. So when I was researching, I was like, oh yeah, what was his punishment for murdering his girlfriend for deciding that she needed bodily autonomy, that she needed to get out of this abusive relationship, that she needed abortion because she was no longer ready to be connected to this person. There's nothing to find out about it. And he had a history of abusing her, like I said before. Before getting her abortion, she'd gone to the police because he'd assaulted her. And it turns out that the police in Texas didn't even file the charges until after her murder. They were like, oh, you murdered this woman. I guess we can tack this on. I just want to say we're talking about Texas here, but it's a lot of anti-abortion states where there are all these mechanisms in place to control pregnant people, but there's nothing to protect or empower them. Totally, totally. And what these stories tell us is this is not about fetuses or babies. This is about taking control out of the hands of pregnant people and handing it to literally anyone else, especially abusive, controlling partners or former partners with basically no repercussions for the harms they may cause. I mean, we never heard about Harold Thompson again. Nothing. Okay. Anyway, Texas isn't the only anti-abortion state not protecting pregnant people. What are they up to in South Carolina? Well, listen up. If there's one thing the feminist buzzkills love, it's exposing hypocrisy. And there's a bill out of South Carolina doing just that. This bill, currently under consideration by a South Carolina Senate subcommittee, says, okay, you want to enforce a strict six-week abortion ban? Then let's see you deal with the consequences of it instead of the people. So this bill, which is currently under consideration by a South Carolina Senate subcommittee, says, okay, so you want to enforce a strict six-week abortion ban? Then let's see you deal with the consequences of it instead of the people. So the proposed bill would offer folks who couldn't get abortions because of the state's ban compensation for the medical and financial hardship that followed as a result of that ban. That's right. Nice. That means money for medical and psychiatric services pre, during, and post-pregnancy. Plus, they'd be eligible for state programs to support them during and after the pregnancy as well. Basically, every person deserves who needs a, who has a pregnancy, but people who don't have the money for this and who know that this isn't what they would for their body, especially. I also like that this bill confronts like the pro-life lowlifes on the most obvious question. What about those kids you saved? Mm, like, what about them? What about it? And so one of the great things about this bill is that it ensures child support, health, vision, dental care, and money for education, including a state-funded college saving plan, which again, is something all children deserve. If their parents can provide it, then the state better. And yeah, these are unplanned pregnancies, which means there was no financial planning as right. well. But going back, as we've said a billion times, the worst case scenario of carrying an unwanted pregnancy in a state with an abortion ban is not getting a needed abortion when the stakes are the highest. So in that worst case scenario, like if the woman dies or gets disabled because of the pregnancy, the state would then have to chip in for funeral costs and medical bills. Gruesome, but so gruesome. If you think you need an abortion and you don't really feel like your life is set up to have a child, it might also mean that you have not planned for these things in your planning. You would think, you would hope that people who call themselves pro-life would be into this, but it turns out that being confronted by their own murderous bullshit makes them a 
teensy weensy bit uncomfortable. Ooh. I know it's weird. They're like, oh, just because we banned abortion, like that doesn't mean it's the state's job to make you pay for everything that happens after you get it, even though the state is the reason you can't get your abortion. Literally, doctors know how to do it. They know how to do it. It's not They're like it's like new allowed. technology. No one's up on. Like everyone knows how to do it. Uh, it's in the Bible. So <laughs> let's not forget. Speaking of the Bible, anti-abortion groups are <laughs> struggling in their reactions to this one. South Carolina Citizens for Life said they are opposed to this bill, but that they as a group. They're like, but we've always supported child-centered and women-centered programs. Like, I don't think fake clinics count. I know fake clinics don't count. And they're basically saying like, you know, the state already provides billions of dollars worth of support. And it's like, but obviously not enough if this law had to be written to support people also actually through their pregnancies. To go back to our earlier story, like the state supplies a lot of money to fake clinics to do nothing. Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. But like, like, come on, let's be honest. So how would a person get the support? If this bill passed in South Carolina, which like pie in the sky, but let's say best case scenario, best case scenario, if this bill were to pass, which it probably won't, uh, to receive the compensation, women would need to file an affidavit with the state's Department of Social Services, indicating that they wanted to um, terminate their pregnancy, but they could not because of that affidavit does not sound safe at all. Can you imagine? I'm just I thought about this when I read this. Like, can you imagine a person this bill passes and a person does get an affidavit and they get all the supports. I just see some evil middle schooler being like, eh, your mom didn't even want you. <laughs> I hadn't even considered that. But even just with the track, like with the tracking, it's like, oh, you want me to confess? Right. <laughs> you want me to confess? What that on my record and my child's record? <laughs> Not to mention how much people love filling out piles of paperwork when they're carrying an unwanted pregnancy. Oh, so fun. Let so alone fun. regular pregnant. <laughs> You know, later on in this episode, we're talking to Dr. Diana Green Foster about the Turnaway study. And it was great to read about this bill and basically see like point for point from the Turnaway study, like, oh, yeah, all of these adverse repercussions of being forced to give birth, like the ones that can actually be fixed with money right, are right. accounted for in this bill. But as we said, money is literally the least you can do. This is a great tool for calling the bluff on anti-abortion legislators and saying, look, if you care so much about life, Help these folks live theirs. And I agree. And I thought that when I read it, but I was also like, there's got to be a but. Like, there's got to be something here. There's always a but. And of course, when I read through it, parts of it, I was just like, sure. Like, if you're going to make someone carry a pregnancy or term short, if you're going to do this, this sounds great. But then there's our huge but there, which is that it is essentially a fetal personhood bill, right? There's mm -hmm. things in there like um, child support starting during a pregnancy and all these things that sort of essentially say that South Carolina fetuses are people, mm -hmm. which they are not their fetuses. And that's something that we will repeat until the end of time on this podcast. But it is also fun for them, for like the writer of this bill to just be like, okay, if you want a fetus to be a person, let's start acting like this person has a future. Yeah. Yeah. It's just calling out point for point, all of the things they say they care about yeah. and aren't actually doing anything to do. Like we said, we don't expect this pill to pass. And while it would be awesome for people to get this money, they should have been able to get their abortions in the first place. But that's why this is such a great stunt. Yeah. It's, and it's just a stunt. As always, these stories will be in the show notes and you can find the best, most up to the minute resources on accessing abortion care and funding for your care on our website, aafront.org. Our Charlie chatbot on the bottom right will walk anyone, anywhere in the country through their options and resources for abortion. This was such a great story to segue into our guest today, Moji. 
why don't you introduce her? Today's guest is a University of California, San Francisco professor and the researcher who led the 2020 Turnaway Study, as well as a 2023 MacArthur Fellow, aka Genius Award recipient. That's right. We got geniuses in the house. The Turnaway Study was a study of 1,000 people seeking abortions across 21 states who identified themselves as women. It collected concrete facts about the differences in the mental, physical, and socioeconomic outcomes of people who were able to receive a wanted abortion and those who were denied health care. I'm so excited to talk to our guest, Dr. Diana Green Foster. Welcome, Diana. So glad you're joining us. Thank you, Moji. Thanks for having me. So you led the Turnaway Study, an incredible study that has been referenced thousands of times. That's just us. <laughs> um, <laughs> mostly because of the incredible findings you uncovered and the time doing the research. And what inspired you to create this study? So at the time, around 2006 or seven, that the big conversation in, across the country that was motivating a lot of laws to restrict abortion was the idea that abortion hurts women. And the, you know, Supreme Court had allowed restrictions to stand on the basis that women would come to regret their decisions and be sad. When that happened, it was clear to everyone that there weren't actually data. It was like a talking point of the anti-abortion crowd that abortion hurts women. But there were no data to prove it. And really you know, between one in three and one in four women have abortions in their lifetime, then, and it causes depression, we really need to know. So from a purely scientific perspective, this is a really important question, no matter the slogans. And the fact that this idea with no data is allowing governments to restrict access to abortion, well, then we really need some data. It was the idea that it was possible to study what the consequences for someone would be if they got a wanted abortion or they were denied. The idea was sparked when Dr. Eleanor Dry, a physician who runs the Women's Options Center at San Francisco General Hospital, said to me, I wonder what happens to the people we turn away. And it was knowing that that population existed, people who wanted abortions and couldn't get one, that's exactly who you want to follow. If you want to know, well, what's the consequences of getting an abortion? Because here are people who are living the alternative. They're in exactly the same circumstances, but they didn't get the abortion they wanted. And I have to say, back in 2007 or six, when we've started trying to you know, go through the whole process of setting up a study, I had no idea that Roe was on the line and that within 15 years that we would be talking about people legally unable to get abortions. In your TED Talk, you talk about the personal stories of two women who needed abortions and their very different circumstances, your grandmothers. And sometimes when we look at studies, we forget that there are stories behind it. We forget about the stories of people. How does personal storytelling and hard facts intersect for you when it comes to abortion? I love to tell about my grandmas because they so perfectly show the two sides of the study. One got their abortion, the other one didn't get an abortion and, and placed a child for adoption. It's not like I looked at my grandma's history and said, I got to study this. I kind of feel like we all have grandparents or great-grandparents with amazing stories. Unintended pregnancy is really common in all of our families, our moms, ourselves. And so, yes, I have these grandmas, but we all have grandmas. For me, the idea that my grandparents had unwanted pregnancies makes my empathy even greater to know that the people in my studies are people that are like folks who are close to me. There's no way I could stigmatize the experience, just like Renee Bracey Sherman says. Uh, we Everybody all love loves someone who had an abortion. Exactly. I, it's <laughs> such a beautiful quote of hers. So yeah, so it's definitely true of me and it gives me the empathy needed to be unjudgmental, you know, have my 
mind open while I hear people's experiences. And you heard so many experiences while doing this study. And going back a little bit to something we were talking about before, you talked about how all of this research was done before Roe fell, right? So you have all this information, this data to back up the idea that abortion isn't the worst case scenario that someone could go through. What was it like then to do all that research, have that data, and then with the Dobbs decision, see it not implemented or fully ignored in some states? we're all living a total nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. That May mm -hmm. 2022, when the leak came out and just astounded that although we knew the Supreme Court was even willing to consider this case, that they were willing to overturn Roe, but still the heartlessness of that leaked decision. I, I'm, I'm no different from probably most of your listeners in having been horrified. And having the data, yes, both sides cited the data in their amicus briefs. And it's been, turn away study data have been used in many court cases and international tribunals considering liberalizing abortion laws. So it's been very, very useful. And not, unfortunately, like I don't think Justice John Roberts read the whole damn book and, and changed his mind, because I really wish that had happened. But they were not making decisions based on the science. They weren't making decisions based on predicted outcomes for the people of America. They were making clearly making an ideological decision for the people who put them in that position. I don't even know what they personally believe. I don't think they did it on the basis of outcomes or science or empathy or certainly not an informed decision about let's weigh all the consequences. They did not do that. You said both sides cited in the Dobbs case. What did the anti say about the turnaway study yeah. in their defense of ending abortion? I think the amicus brief could have been subtitled turnaway study sucks. Oh, got it. Okay. <laughs> so nothing was, important. Okay. I mean, it was an attempt to discredit, which is, you know, nice that they bothered. Their <laughs> critiques were based on an article that was published in Frontiers and was retracted because the critiques were just so blatantly wrong. Yes, they cite, they had critiques. They're the same critiques that were in a paper that were later retracted. They do love a faulty science and it's something that is going to be retracted oh, later. And it turns uh, out your science was not. <laughs> yes, my science has not been retracted. Their critique was retracted. We were just in this episode talking about this South Carolina bill that you may or may not have heard of that has been proposed that would compensate people who were not able to receive a wanted abortion. You note in your research that the physical and financial health of people who are turned away suffer. And one could argue that this bill is maybe a cure. Now, we know this bill is not going to pass, but as a person whose research supports this help for parents, how does it feel to see your work used in this way by lawmakers? South Carolina is one of many states, most of, all of our states actually, that does a completely insufficient job of providing basic needs for people who are, have low income and are trying to raise our next generation of citizens. There is so much that could be done. I'm in favor of this bill. They should fund it. And everyone who experiences challenges raising their kids should get to have health care, income supports, parental leave. Yeah, we need this. I don't know how they're going to prove that you were denied a wanted abortion. But yes, we should have more laws, more programs, more funding to support low-income parents. Because it is one of the things that the Turnaway Study shows is that our safety net is complete. People do want abortions when they feel that they don't have the economic uh, resources to support a child. But very rarely is that their only reason. And the economic burden for people who want a kid, who are ready to raise a kid, I feel like it's 
our government does very little to make kids have the best opportunities possible, and they should. So if this law is a little opens a door to thinking about what do low-income parents need, good. They should think about that. Yeah. And it's it's so funny because they're like, well, you know, this bill would, would cost so much money. It's like, yeah, that's how much it would cost these people to raise these kids that you're frightened right. to have. Yeah. <laughs> Which leads and us I into should our- also yeah. note that there's no way that a money is going to compensate for having a kid with someone that you weren't didn't want to have a kid with right. for your Absolutely. emotional strain because you're trying to provide for a kid you already have it's not like they should do this they should provide for low-income parents but but actually a money dollar amount is not going to compensate for having to have your rapist kid or having to not be there for your existing kid because now you're trying to raise a kid that you weren't ready to have so it's not like a dollar amount fixes it, but sure, send money to low-income parents. You've said that access to abortion is about control over one's body, life, and destiny, which, again, that's more than just money can buy, right? And in your experience as a demographer, what groups are the most vulnerable to losing control when abortion is restricted? Yeah, that's such an interesting question, Dukes. And I'm not, I am right now trying to look at what the consequence of the Dobbs decision was. and. I can tell you the groups I'm worried about, and I. but even I don't know exactly who is struggling the most. I know that minors, people who are under age 18, mm. have by law extra barriers, or used to in the Roe era, of extra barriers put on them to try and get abortions. They are already a group with very low resources and probably not cars and driver's licenses and credit cards. So minors are one, immigrants are another, especially now when getting an abortion might mean crossing state lines, that can be particularly fraught. There are people who are, movement is limited, either because they have disabilities or incarcerated or hospitalized. So there are lots of people who just cannot up and go And right now, our situation is if you want an abortion in a clinic and you live in a state with a ban, we're talking could be hundreds of miles. And and anyone who can't easily move is going to have a hard time with that. Mm. People with kids who who need to we're already raising young kids, which is a lot of people who need abortions are already raising young kids. You've kind of just alluded to sort of maybe what's next. What can we look forward to? The Turnaway study seems so essential in terms of what we know about what happens when people do or do not get the care that they need, the health care that they need. You've kind of alluded to it, but could you just drill down like what's coming next? What are you working on? How soon can we expect it? Killer question for an academic is how fast can <laughs> Is it ready now? I need the numbers now, Diana. Can I read an abstract right now? <laughs> yes. Uh, you can read an abstract, but not of mine. There's a group of scientists at UCSF collaborating with other scientists in a study called Care Post Row to look at all the ways, it's kind of like the unintended consequences of the Dobbs decision, because it doesn't just affect people who have abortions, it affects people who are pregnant, whether they want an abortion or not when they became pregnant. And Care Post Row, which was very good at, it's led by Dr. Daniel Grossman, and it tells about ways in which 
just re- routine medical care is made worse by the Dobbs decision, ways in which they had to deliver substandard care because of the Dobbs decision. So this it could be a comp- pregnancy with complications, delivery with complications, treatment for other chronic conditions. So other people are faster than I am, but I am working on what the consequences of Dobbs has been, the end of row. And what I did was to be ready with that leak sure made it clear what was happening. And so we were ready in June 2022 to recruit the last people served in their state before a ban took effect. Mm. And people whose appointments were just after that ban took effect Mm -hmm. and had to either travel, order medication abortion pills online, or carry a pregnancy to term. So we recruited people on either whose appointments were on either side of the ban taking effect and got um, several hundred people in a study. It's not enough. First of all, the, the story is dramatically changing over time. The people who, you know, the amount of resources put into to making abortion information available, like Plan C pills for one that can tell you where you can order pills, a lot of hotlines that could help give you money to travel. Those groups really are changing the landscape of abortion availability. So if we had just done a narrow snapshot back in May to July 2022, it would not have been the whole story. So we're continuing to recruit people through hotlines and other ways, people from banned states looking for abortion. And so far, I think it's a story of travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I know the bigger picture outside of my study is not just about travel. It's also about ordering pills from the internet, either from aid access or a telemedicine clinic in a protected state or from an online store. The volume of pills being sent on the mail seems to be humongous. And how are people finding out about that? who is still not being reached, who never got the information they needed, who didn't have a credit card so couldn't order, who never found out about Las Libres, which would do it for free. These are questions that I would love to have in an abstract to let you read, but I don't know the answers yet. This is somewhat off subject, but I remember even during Roe, I feel like maybe 2020, maybe 2019, reading an article and a person had attempted an abortion with a hanger. And I was like, do they not know about abortion pills? Like, and I feel like I, at that point, kind of became an abortion pill evangelist as much as I could. Like, there are other ways if you can't get the care you need. And I just like that you're reminding, like, yeah, there are people are not being reached, people that are not hearing about it. And that to me is terrifying. And it's, seems almost impossible to study those people. Like, how do you get in touch as a researcher with those people? Yes, that is the biggest challenge because the people who don't know how to get onto Plan C website and see what the options are, who don't hear about medication abortion pills, those are the people who are most likely to do something that would harm their bodies to try and end a pregnancy. And I am open, anyone can email me if they have suggestions, but I think those people are, whatever studies we do that that recruit people who come into clinics or who call hotlines, those are not the people who are the worst off. So whatever bad outcomes we find, it's even worse than that for some other people. And that we keep in mind when we're reporting. Yet for the people who sought help, still they spent hundreds of dollars and traveled hundreds of miles or waited weeks in order to get abortions And there are people who were even worse off who never made it to the hotline or to the clinic. So I took us all the way down. You got to wrap up the interview a little bit. Can you give us a bright hope to close out this interview with? Because you seem like such a delightful person. And I would like to leave our our listeners something hopeful. (laughs) When the Dobbs decision 
came down, I really felt very pessimistic because I know that there that people harm themselves to try end pregnancies even with and so I really thought that a large fraction of people would carry pregnancies to term that they weren't didn't want to carry to term and that to me seemed like a very rough situation based on the study in terms of physical health and economic health and families. But what I should have also taken away from the Turnaway study was the strength of people's determination and know that people won't just sit back when someone's pregnant and they don't want to be pregnant. They are so motivated and people have responsibilities to their kids, to their families. And so nobody's first choice is to harm themselves. The determination that people have is clear in what happened after the dubs decision, which is a massive amount of travel and innovation and working together and disseminating information so that the world looks much better than I anticipated because of all the efforts put in by advocates, by clinics, by advocacy groups that are interested in streamlining access to pills. And so the world is better than I anticipated. And what we have to worry about is the people who aren't brought into the fold, who don't get the information they need. There's still work to be done, but the I don't think that Dobbs created the immediate disaster that I had anticipated. So one more plug. My sister uh, is in theater in upstate New York, and she wrote a play about the Turnaway study. And the idea is to talk about the science, talk about how one does a study like this, and bring the voices of the women who participated in the study to the front. So it's funny and smart and unfortunately super timely for our post-Dobbs time to talk about what are the burdens in accessing care and in the consequences when someone is or isn't able to get an abortion. So it's showing in the Kitchen Theater in Ithaca, New York in early May. Oh my gosh, field trip. Field trip, we're going. It's showing Um, in mid-May. We're going to get a link and make sure we include it in our show notes so that anyone in Ithaca or who can get to Ithaca will see it. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dana, it's been so wonderful to have you here on the show. We depend on your research so much to do the work that we do. And it's just so wonderful to have you here. Thank you again. Such an honor. Thank you. Thank you. So go ahead and read the Turnaway study and check out Diana Green Foster's TED Talk, which we've linked in the show notes. And now our new party game, Abortion or Distortion. This is the game where you name three things and I tell you if it's about abortion or not. So this week I'm guessing and you got to tell me about the three quotes you're going to read. Okay. So this week, Moji, you have to guess if the three quotes I read are from an anti-abortion asshole or a Batman character. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I did have fun with this one. Are you ready to play? I'm ready to play. Okay. Are you ready to play? Absolutely. Okay. Anti-abortion asshole or Batman character. Your first quote is, he put the fear of God in people and said, and what will happen to you if America goes down? What do you Mm. think? Anti-abortion asshole or Batman character mode. I'm going to say this sounds like Bane. So I'm going to say Batman character. You would think that this is a Batman character, but this is an anti-abortion. Oh, fuck. <laughs> this is self-proclaimed prophet Lance Walnaw talking to Charlie Kirk about what he would have done if he had a $14 million Super Bowl commercial to bring people to Jesus. He also believes that abortion led to rejecting gender truth. Okay, so he wouldn't spend it on foot washing. Got it. No, no. (laughs) He feels that he can do better by terrifying people into loving God. 
All right. One down, two to go. I'm feeling confident. Okay. Quote number two, anti-abortion asshole or Batman character. Your quote is, sometimes the truth isn't good enough. Sometimes people deserve more. Sometimes people deserve to have their faith rewarded. Anti-abortion asshole or Batman character. Hmm. Hmm. This is tough. Uh, I feel like anti-abortion assholes usually aren't this positive. So I'm going to say Batman. You're right. (laughs) Batman himself said this in the dark night. (laughs) So that's one point for Moji, one point for me, one more question. All right, the tiebreaker. In abortion or distortion, Moji, tell me if this final quote is an anti-abortion asshole or a Batman character. Your quote is, the munchkins, oompa loompas, whatever you want to call them, are throwing a party while there is a dead person under a house and they're skipping with Dorothy. This doesn't even make sense. I'm going to say the Joker, Batman character. This is giving Joker. And I'm going to give you half a point for that one because this is Candace Owens. Okay, Joker. (laughs) What does that even mean? I kind of want to know the context. And also I'm fine with it just living like this sounding deranged. How the Wizard of Oz is a satanic ritual, but I'm sure maybe it made sense to her but it really was giving Joker vibes. I was pretty sure, but also even as Joker, it's deranged. All right. (laughs) Great job, Moji. We each got a point and a half, meaning we both won abortion or distortion this week. So far, I love this game. (laughs) And we can't do this podcast without the help of our fake sponsors. Moji, who do we have this week? One in four people who can will have an abortion in their lifetime. This means it's pretty much guaranteed that someone you know is considering having an abortion right now. If you are looking for that perfect gift to insert your opinion about their choices, Fruit of the Womb Edible Arrangements is just the ticket. It's the perfect gift to send to anyone you object to having an abortion. Each Fruit of the Womb Edible Arrangement is a hollowed out papaya stuffed with an apple carved into a fetus. It's a delicious symbol that says, be fruitful and multiply instead of becoming a baby-killing whore. So send a Fruit of the Womb edible arrangement to your favorite harlot today using the promo code STRANGEFRUIT. Bonus, if you order now, we'll throw in an embryo-shaped balloon that says, mommy, when you press its umbilical cord. Fruit of the Womb edible arrangements. We remove the seeds so they don't have to. Oh my gosh, it really hit in a weird way. I do not like it. But I am hungry for papaya now. Who vets these sponsors? It's it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's our show. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Diana Green Foster. Be sure to watch her TED Talk and check out the Turnaway study available wherever you buy your books. A report just came out which looked at 6,000 patients who took medication abortion after an online appointment, and it found that 99.7% of those abortions were not followed by any serious adverse events, which makes it even crazier that this safe, effective, and convenient way to self-manage abortion is under attack. March 26, SCOTUS will be hearing arguments in the case against Mifepristone. Please go sign our petition at aafront.org and ask the FDA to use their power to protect Mifepristone and medication abortion.
No One Asked You, the groovy doc detailing Abortion Access Front's founding and why we are here is coming to a town near you. Don't miss us in Washington, D.C., Omaha, Nebraska, and the Athena Film Festival in New York. Tickets are available at noonaskedyoudoc.com. Did we make you smarter? Make you laugh today? Well, show us some love by liking, subscribing, and giving us a five-star rating. Plus, stay connected on social media. We're at Abortion Front across all platforms. Join the cause and join the fun. Looking for where you might fit in to do some abortion activism? We've got a five-part activist training series called Operation Save Abortion at OperationSaveAbortion.com. And visit our super cool activist calendar, which is full of local and national actions and educational opportunities for you. This week's featured action is Know Your Plan C, the state of pills by mail in the U.S. hosted by Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights and Plan C Pills. This sounds amazing. This virtual oh my God. train. Yeah. Grandmas, abortion yeah. pills, Fuck sign yeah. me up. This virtual training will help educate folks on the state of pills in the U.S. and the ways people can help share this information and support new systems of access. It's on Wednesday, the 21st at 12 p.m. ET, and the link can be found in our activist calendar. We'll be dark next week, but I'll be hanging out with Dukes again on March 1st, and we'll be talking to Dr. Rebecca Gompertz founder and director of Women on Waves and Women on Web, and comedian and actor Suba Agarwal. Join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge today at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. Feminist Buzzkills is produced by Abortion Access Front. Finally, we leave you with Oklahoma Senator and Operation Save America fanboy, Dusty Devers, a man who shows us his whole ass and what he's thinking when he peeks at your private browser window. There's no closed door porn. What you're doing in your bedroom, what you're doing in private is affecting my children. Mm. It's affecting my, my friends. It's affecting everybody. So uh, we get our rights from God. Government doesn't give us our rights. We, our constitution says this very thing. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. When BS is popping, we pop off. New episodes drop Friday. If you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.